This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Again, it's Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Ephesus. He's going to speak about Jesus here. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Um, Jesus, we come before you right now needing your spirit, uh, needing your spirit to remind us of your love for us as individuals, but also of your love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and not merely of your plan to reconcile us to yourself, but your plan to reconcile us to one another. Not merely for our own sake, but for the sake of your glory and the world. That you intend to put on display your love, your sacrifice, your grace, your mercy, your kindness, your self-giving love through us as your people is an incredible truth. And I pray that you would open our eyes to it this morning. But also that you would convict us personally where our own vision for community and our own involvement and relationships with your people are veering off course. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Heal where we need to be healed. Would you awaken us again to the beauty of what you've called us to and the privilege we have to be sons and daughters of the living God, brothers and sisters who are called to reflect your glory as a community in this world. And so would you help us this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. It was about 10 years ago, I was um, a pastor in Fort Collins. We had planted a church that's still up there, a church that I love. And, and one, of the churches, uh, one of the kind of church's strengths was community, uh, just kind of life together. It was a smaller church, a church plant, and we just spent life together. We ate meals together. We went to games together. We watched stuff together. We partied together, and we cried together, and we grieved together, and we went to hospitals together, and went to parks together. We just lived life together. And it was just a really powerful thing. And a lot of people that began coming to the church felt a kind of dynamic of community where I think people were able to be honest and be present and feel loved and accepted. It was the strength of that community. And I remember at one point, uh, there was an international student from Nigeria who had come to our church. His name was John, a really sweet follower of Jesus, got involved. And I remember getting to know him and starting to have meals. And he began coming on Sundays, then kind of coming to small group. And we began having meals on Sundays. And he was without transportation as an international student. And so a number of people were just helping with rides. And uh, he got very kind of like involved in our church family. And it was, it was a part of the family. 
And it was a really beautiful thing. And I remember, though, um, kind of a few months after he had uh, come to our church, again, it was just a few months after he had been in the States, I remember seeing him in the back corner of the sanctuary, just clearly, like, uh, discouraged. And I saw a couple weeks, and so I just kind of, like, sat down with him, like, hey, you know, let's get a meal. What's going on? And, uh, and he expressed to me how um, isolated and alone he felt and how hurt he felt uh, by our church's lack of kind of like integration of him and bringing him into community. And, and that, was, that was hard for me with my kind of like uh, blindness to my own sort of cultural presuppositions. I thought, man, like this is like our thing. Like this is the thing that people like about us. We're bad at a bunch of other stuff, but this is like the thing, you know? Uh, and as I learned more about his experience, I began to kind of have my own eyes opened up to the kind of unique reality of the hyper-individualism that for me has just been the air that I breathe my whole life and the water that I swim in. That for him, our best version of community was still a a substantial kind of like um, uh, lessening of what he has experienced in his life with the community that he grew up in and the environment and the culture that he grew up in. And so while I might feel like, man, this is the best I've ever been a part of in terms of life together, For him, the grief of feeling so isolated because it was kind of, again, compared to where he had come from in his own cultural experience. And so I just started trying to learn and understand. And somebody had pointed me to really a primer for uh, international students that are coming uh, to the States just saying, hey, this is what what people that are thoughtful around kind of cultural differences and different kind of cultural insights among different uh, nationalities and ethnicities. Kind of this is what those people have prepared international students, especially from the global east and the global south, as they come into western countries, in particular uh, the United States, uh, around this issue of, of individualism. And this is from one university, and I want to read to you what um, the university has written to prepare international students for American culture. It says this, it says, a common thread among American values, and I want you to pay attention to the term values, something we value, is individualism, or the idea that people are independent and driven by personal interests. Americans tend to view themselves first and foremost as individuals with both freedom and responsibility to manage their own lives, set their own agenda, and make their own decisions. For these reasons, people are held individually accountable for their actions. Of course, family and friends are also important, but the priority is often placed on the individual. Americans tend to be less comfortable when they are obligated to or dependent on others. This notion is also the foundation of America's legal system and protected rights and freedoms. That the idea that I am my own person and don't need to be responsible for other people and other people aren't responsible for me is a foundational presupposition that is kind of embedded into the cultural value system that anybody that's grown up in sort of like uh, kind of the Western ideologies that pervade America are just inundated with. It's just kind of second nature to us. And so when we start thinking about what does it mean to be who God's called us to be in community, we have to understand that in the kind of American environment, cultural environment, uh, there are values that we have that will grate against some of the things that God is calling us to with respect to our engagement in Christian community. And so some of the things we're going to talk about today are going to be hard for us. 
because it's going to challenge us out of some of the cultural values that actually lead people to environments of competition and comparison rather than environments of cooperation and kind of like a corporate entity. What it's saying, and there are so many studies about this, there's a, a study called Hofstede Insights, a, a researcher named Gert Hofstede that wrote kind of this broad thing looking at cultural identities in different nations, and America is the most individualistic country on the planet, without question. Without question. So you're swimming in a water, you're breathing in air that's actually putting us at a position that some of the things that are called to as human beings are going to kind of push us a little bit. And what I think is beautiful about what God has called us to in community is that he's called us as people to be human beings that aren't merely being kind of reconciled to God and learning what it means to worship him, which we talked about last week, and what it means to relate to him and have a relationship with him. But he's called us to be a family that's interdependent, that's actually has diversity within our perspectives and our gifting and our wiring, but we're using those diverse giftings, resources, wirings, personalities for the good of one another, sacrificially to bless others, but also to learn from and value and benefit from the gifts of others. And when we do that, it's not just like all of your kind of like uh, personal needs are filled up. When we do that, God is actually intending to put something on display for the world to see. And when I say the world, I don't even just mean the human world. What we'll look at in Ephesians is that God, through the community of his people, has actually designed his church to put on display the glory of Jesus, even for the spiritual beings in the unseen realm. That when people watch the way you love, and you forgive, and you lean into hard conversations, and you apologize, and you show gentleness, and you honor somebody that's different than you, and you show charity in a conversation that's divided, it's like even the angelic world is looking at humanity and saying, whoa. Jesus must be incredible. Jesus must be beautiful. Jesus must be stunning. And my fear is that as we think about where we are right now in this cultural moment as the church, and I say this in terms of just like broadly the church in America, but I say this for our own church, for us, we need to pay attention to what God wants for us here because I think that there are areas where we are drifting from God's design for humanity and I think it is gonna misrepresent what God has intended to put on display through our life together as a church. And so what I want to do for a moment is I want to kind of back up a little bit, give a, get you a little bit into the flow of Ephesians, what Paul is doing as he writes this letter to uh, the Christians in Ephesus, and kind of going to land in Ephesians 4. I'm going to walk through the passage pretty quickly, just kind of making observations and trying to make sense of the passage as best we can. And then I'm going to pull out really five pastoral um, kind of encouragements for us as a people. And so if you want to keep your Bible open, you can just look at Ephesians 4, but I'm going to give us a little bit of the background. Paul is this apostle who had been called by Jesus. He opposed Jesus. Jesus conquered him with his mercy and love, transformed him, and commissioned him to use his life to bring the good news about the death and resurrection of Jesus and how through Jesus, God is restoring everything that's broken in this world. And he called Paul to be kind of an ambassador for that news, not just bringing it to the people of Israel, but bringing that across cultural boundaries to people from different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds, different religious backgrounds, and that this news would be reconciling not just people from different experiences to God, but reconciling divided people to one another. And that's what he's doing in Ephesians, is he's reminding this church that's actually experiencing division within their church between the Jewish people and the non-Jewish nations that were represented in their community, they were having a hard time understanding how to relate because they had different experiences, different histories, different backgrounds, different values. And they're saying, how do we come together to be this picture of Jesus in the world when we have all these differences? 
And so Paul starts in chapter one just by saying, in love, God chose you to be a part of his family. In love, he predestined you for adoption as children, to be his children. And as his children, you're reconciled to God, not because you did anything good, not because you had the best ideas, not because you're better than your neighbor, not because your culture got the value systems right, not because of any of those things. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's reconciled us. He's made us alive to God. By grace, you've been saved. It says, and he's seated, with us, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places, like made us this kind of like part of this community with Jesus. But that's all by grace. And what Paul does in chapter two is he says, it's not just your relationship with God that's by grace. He's also through grace reconciling humanity to one another. And we read it in the call to worship. He's breaking down these walls of hostility that divide us through his blood, through his grace, through his love. He's actually dividing or reconciling divided people with one another. And what Paul says in Ephesians 3, which I just think is so stunning, he says, this is what God called me to. He called me to bring the good news of Jesus across cultural barriers, not merely so individuals get to go to heaven, not merely so individuals from different nations have a relationship with God, so that humanity itself will be reconciled to one another. And here's what he says in Ephesians 3, verse 10. Listen to this. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What Paul's saying is your relationship with that person that you're frustrated with and the ability that God has given you through the power of his spirit to reconcile, to love, to forgive, to show grace, and to heal is seen by unseen spiritual beings, which is super weird. If you're new to Christianity and you're like, wait a second, you know, I'm just entertaining the God thing, you know, like the spiritual beings and angels and demons, it's just like not yet, I'm not there yet. The Bible is like really clear that there are spiritual forces at play right now, at play right now. And what God is doing in the church is supposed to put on display his manifold wisdom, his glory through our life together. That your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ matters for the world. It matters for God's purposes in creation. That he wants the world to see the glory of his gentleness, his love, his patience, his kindness, his sacrifice, his servant-heartedness. And the way the world is going to see that in the design of Jesus is through his people. And so the question we have to ask right now is, how much are we aligning our lives with that vision for Christian community? And my sense is there are areas where I have needed all week this week, just been poked in different areas like, oh man, I need to go back to that relationship or I need to think, repent of my attitude towards that person or those people that have that perspective or whatever, my, all the things that make me lift myself up over against other people or keep me barriered apart from other people. It's like God needs to tear that stuff down in my own heart. And I think there's some stuff he might need to tear down in our heart as a, as a people. And so all of this vision of what God is doing to reconcile humanity to himself and to one another, to put on display his glory to the world, kind of culminates in Ephesians 3 with Paul just bowing his knees before God and saying, we need you. Like we just pray, Lord, we need you. We need you to strengthen our inner being to comprehend your love for us, your grace towards us, your forgiveness towards us, so that as we learn more about your love for us, you would fill us up with all of your fullness that we could be a people that show that love to the world. And he turns the corner then in Ephesians 4 and he says, so I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, I'm bound to this mission. I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk worthy. 
Jesus, the Son of God, came into this world, pursued you even while you were a sinner, chased you down with mercy, washed you, cleansed you, served you, sacrificed for you, brought you back into relationship with God and into his family to put his glory on display. So live like that. Live like that. Let go of the petty differences that divide and begin to show humility. It's Ephesians 4. With all humility, with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, like hungry to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is what you've been called to. You've been called to have this humility towards one another. I want you to hear these words, humility. I want you to think about your posture over the past year and a half. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager, hungry to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is a life worthy. This is a life that's leaning in, not just to me and Jesus' time, but who God's created us to be, Park Church to be, this local church, who he's called us to be. People of humility, of gentleness, of patience, of forbearance, with an eagerness to maintain unity. Now, that doesn't stomp out diversity in different opinions and thoughts and perspectives. That's where Paul goes next. He says the unity is bound up in the unity of God. There is one God. There's one faith. There's one spirit. There's one baptism. It is about us representing Jesus in the world, holding fast together. But he's given us all sorts of different gifts, different experiences, different lives, different relationships, different thoughts, different families, different cultural backgrounds. That matters. But when you see people as a gift from which you have something to learn, and when you offer yourself not as somebody to exalt over, but to humbly serve and say, here's who I am, here's what I can give and offer and love and serve sacrificially this world, when we actually all approach each other like that, there's a diversity and a unity that is glorious, and the world is in desperate need to see that kind of a community. And, and if we're honest, it's not who the world has seen in the church. And that's, that's the part that just kind of breaks my heart. Now, I don't mean to actually disrespect any of the beautiful things that so many people in our community have done to lean into hard conversations, to show grace and forgiveness, to actually lean into differences and learn to appreciate and value other people, beautiful things. And so I'm not like, hey, we're all really bad at this, but I do think there are areas where all of us can grow. All of us can grow. And so what I want to do is just kind of walk through this section right here. We're going to look at these kind of descriptions of what God has called us to and then we'll kind of pull out some pastoral implications for us as a church family. Starting in verse 11, it says this, And he gave, this is Jesus, to build up this body, to put on display his glory, to build the church into this picture of the character of God and the glory of God in the world, that we would shine his glory to the world. Here's what he did. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. He's saying what he's done is he's, the, the background of this passage right here in verse 10 is stunning. He quotes Psalm 68 and this idea of him descending in and essentially conquering people that were running away from him with his grace and his love, bringing them into his family, showing them kindness and redeploying them to actually serve his community. Not as those who do all the work of the community, the, those are called to humbly lay down their lives, not to do all the work of the ministry, but to equip what it says, the saints for the work of the ministry. In this kind of in 
New Testament terminology, saints are those that have been made clean or made whole through the blood of the Lamb. It's not people that perform miracles or had some sort of post-mortem appearance. It's not like that. Those have been canonized by some official doctrine or some official kind of ecclesial body. It's those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus, those who take the bread and take the cup and say, the body of Christ is broken for me. The blood of Christ was shed for me. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. You are in him a saint. And the work of the ministry, the work of the church is done by all of the people of God with all of the different gifts and experiences and perspectives and wirings he's given you. And when it says equip them for the work of the ministry, it's not just like equip them to stand on the front porch and greet. It's not just equip them to lead a gospel community. It's not just equip them to volunteer at Park Kids. Those, those things matter and we should do those things because it's stuff we need to do. But it's to equip us for lives of service to equip us to offer who God's made us to be and the gifts and the thoughts and the perspectives and the resources he's given us to offer myself like I'm here to help build up this body. I'm here to show love and sacrificial care for others around me with the different gifts he's given you. If it's encouragement, if it's care, if it's instruction, if it's teaching, if it's just works of service, if it's whatever it is, just like I'm here to bless others, if it's to reach out to the person behind you and say, what's your name? Or to give a person a call, I haven't seen you at Gospel Community for a while, how are you doing? Or I know your family just had a baby, or I know you just lost a loved one, I'm just praying for you. Like this is the work of the ministry that he's called us to do. So what's the point? I, I, um, in the passage it says, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And if, if I was just like, okay, we all have different gifts, and we're going we're gonna to build something together. In this passage, it's going to be kind of these mixed metaphors of a body and arch- architectural kind of imagery. Like we're building something together. So what are we building? Well, if I was like, all right, we're going to build a building project. Come next Saturday, we're going to build something together. And some of you are like, man, I'm good with framing and carpentry work. Others are like, man, I'm good at drywall. Somebody else is like, I'm good at tile work. I have some roofing experience. Somebody else is like, I don't know anything, but I have two hands. You know, like I'm here. And whatever. And here you are. And you're here and like, okay, well, what's the first thing we probably need to figure out? What are we building? What are we doing? Just like aimlessly constructing things? Paul's super clear about what we're building. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. The image is of a body with Christ as the head. And he is the head both in terms of the source of the body, the life giver to the body, the steerer, direction giver to the body, the kind of Lord of the body, but also the one who characterizes and makes sense of every different part of the body. And each member is like a different body part, like hands and feet and knees and shoulders. And he's saying, we exist to come together to build up this picture of Jesus in the world. To actually put on display what Jesus, the head of the body, is like. And so he says it here, for the building up of the body of Christ. And he gives three sort of trajectories. Here's where it's all headed. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. And that's saying until we all of us attain to this shared commitment. Jesus is Lord. He is the Son of God. He came to rescue humanity from our plight away from God, to restore us to the Father and to one another and to restore the world itself. And we believe that. We believe that. We believe that he is the one who's come to restore everything that's been broken until we all attain to that conviction, that unified sense of Jesus is everything. He is the hope of the world. We keep working until we've all attained to the unity of the faith and of this knowledge, this relational intimacy with Jesus, the Son of God. The unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Second thing he says, says, and to the measure, or sorry, to mature manhood, 
Um, he's not talking about like, uh, be a mature man. Uh, he's actually talking about, this is not specific to gender. This is saying as you are kind of raised up into this mature picture of Jesus, like this corporate entity that we all together are supposed to be this mature picture of Jesus in the way we relate to one another, that we'd show his sort of pursuit and his faithfulness and his mercy and his kindness and his grace, that we'd show that to one another, that we would be this mature picture of Jesus in the world. And it says this, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I love this. This is saying like, here's, here's where we're headed. There's this mature picture of Jesus that the church is designed to be. It's a trajectory. It's a direction. That's where we're headed. It's not where we are. We are way back here somewhere, like not yet, kind of filling up to the fullness of Jesus, not yet, who we're supposed to be. And I love that because it's just honest about journey. Like we stumble, we fall, we operate with frustration. I mean, I I feel this personally over the past year and a half. um, I've had to apologize so many times. And most of that's because I have a big mouth. Like um, uh, I talk way too much. And uh, and the Bible's super clear. If you talk, you will sin. I talk a lot, you know, (laughs) ipso facto. (laughs) A big sinner right here, a big one. And, uh, and, And for me, like, I get myself into trouble with my words. I, I get defensive. I, I say too much. I try to explain myself. I do all these things, and, and it's, it's hurtful to people. And I'm learning. I'm like, why do I feel the need to prove myself? Or why do I feel the need to defend that decision? Or why do I feel the need to explain that? And just like, ah, oh, like, learning all these things that Jesus is teaching me and reminding me he loves me, even in my brokenness, even in my mistakes. And it's like, little by little, changing me. I've hurt people over the past year and a half. I had to apologize to multiple people this past week. I'm like back from sabbatical and back to like number two in my job description is apologize to the people I'm actively hurting. You know, it's like, it's real, but it's real for you too. It's real for you too. We stumble. We take these things and these pains from our past and and we have this frustration and these things that just kind of make us mad and they, and have these, they set these trajectories of sin. Trajectories of sin. They're, they're, it's sin but there's things, work we have to do to grow in it. It just takes time. And as we do that work, and as we're reminded about God's love for us, his grace towards us, his patience with us, that little by little he changes us. And when we can show that, grow in the way we show that to one another, we mature as a church family. I think we have matured in some ways. I think there's more areas where we need to mature. But also we fill up this fullness of Jesus. We show this better picture of what Jesus is like, and the world needs to see that better picture. And and your engagement with the body of Christ matters for that. So here's what he says. He says, we're doing that, not merely so we can be a mature picture of Jesus, but also, verse 14, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human craftiness and cunning, deceitful schemes. The the idea that he's using, you know, we just want to, we spend a lot of time this morning really honoring children, and children are like this beautiful picture of faith. Another thing children are a beautiful picture of is ignorance and immaturity. <laughs> and, uh, and no offense, this is real, right? Um, and, and children are easily influenced, right? Like, I can win any game I want to. I can change any rules I want to. I can more or less get my kids to like anything I want to. This is super nefarious and not healthy parenting, right? But, um, but you can, right? You can, like, steer kids, You can manipulate them. You can deceive them. They can be tossed around in really hurtful and painful ways. 
And what Paul's saying is, when we get disconnected from the body of Christ, and we're not living into who he's called us to be, instead of being one corporate entity that's bound together and learning and holding each other accountable and aiming for Jesus and running after him together, we get disconnected. And in, in that position of being disconnected, we're like aimless kids that are just getting tossed around like a ship with no rudder. When the winds blow a ship with no rudder, it can veer off course. You put a rudder on that ship, that ship can stay on course even in the face of the winds. And what he's saying is when we get disconnected from one another, we're like a ship with no rudder, just getting tossed around by ideologies and philosophies. So when you think about how do I relate to somebody that's different than me? Well, what are the prevailing ideologies in our culture about how to relate to people that are different than us? Right? Charity, humility, curiosity, respect, honor? Not so much. The prevailing ideologies are reactivity, contempt, disdain, superiority, write them off, unfriend them, dismiss them, jettison them, run away from them, find a better community somewhere. Those are ideologies, ways of thinking about the world that are set against God's design. God's design is faithfulness, love, humility, kindness, lean in, learn, have a humble heart, be curious. Maybe there's something you don't see. Maybe there's something to be offered or maybe just the work that you do to stay engaged in relationships that are different where people have different perspectives is its own powerful work within us. And so when we get disconnected, we fall into this place of being really vulnerable to deceitful schemes and there are spiritual forces that animate those schemes. I have seen more people walk through processes of deconstructing their faith in this past 18 months than I have ever in my life. Just so many friends that are just questioning so many things. Deconstruction is not all bad. There are things that we need to question. There are things that you've got to wrestle with. There are things that God needs to build up within us and to build those new things within us. There are some things that need to break down. That can be a part of the journey. Having doubts, having questions isn't bad. It's a part of the journey. But when you isolate as an isolated, disconnected person, and now you look at all of Christianity or all of the church or all of the followers of God as if like this thing over here is something that you have this perspective to be able to judge and evaluate its legitimacy or not, like it's a really toxic and destructive and vulnerable place to be. And so the, the path forward isn't ignore your questions. The path forward isn't like just grin and bear it and pretend like you don't have any doubts or frustrations or issues. It's just to process those in community with a bunch of other people that are processing the same things. I have my frustrations and my doubts and my questions. There are things that I'm like, man, the questions I gotta ask and things I gotta process, that's real. And so we do it together. And then here's what it says in verse 15. It says, rather, here's what we do. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom, from Jesus, every joint, listen to these every words, Every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body so that it builds itself up in love. I want you to pay attention to that conditional word there, when. When each part is working properly. When you, who God's designed you to be, are functioning the way that God called you to live, to lean into relationships, to use the gifts God's given you, to serve others, to have conversations, to speak the truth in love, to kind of lean into that divided relationship, to follow up with that person, that, that friendship that just kind of faded away. When, when you're functioning the way God's designed us to function as followers of Jesus, the body builds itself up in love. We get to be this picture of Jesus. And the world needs to see that. Needs to see people that can be in relationship with people that believe different things or have different thoughts or perspectives. The world needs to see forgiveness. The world needs to see like, oh yeah, we totally disagree, but I love them and respect them. I respect their thoughtfulness, their intelligence, their character. We disagree on some of those things and that's okay. 
The world needs to see that. The world needs to see the mercy and grace of Jesus. And so that's what the world needs to see. Let me kind of pull this together with five pastoral exhortations that I think um, are relevant for all of us in different ways. And so one of these might stand out to you. And whatever stands out to you, I want to encourage you to slow down and, and give some thought to in your own time. And the first one is this. That we need to move from being disconnected individuals to an interdependent and embodied community. From disconnected individuals to an interdependent and embodied community. So much of this passage is saying we have to be together. Like the joints have to be joined, right? The hand and the forearm need to be joined with a joint. They've got to be in contact. You've got to live life together. And we are created to be embodied people. I know that we made decisions throughout the pandemic to try to protect the vulnerable in our community and do our part to actually kind of work alongside others in our city to do our best to care for people. Uh, there's hospital beds available for people that need them. We, we did that. And I understand that not everybody likes all of those decisions we made. I get that. There's room to have different opinions about that. I also acknowledge that there's a cost to that, that we've gotten in a habit of being disconnected and that there's pain. There's real pain when that happens. I, I know that. We, we grieve that. We prayed for that. We tried to find ways to connect. And what we acknowledge is the ways that we've been connecting for the past year and a half are not sufficiently God's design for humanity. The way to connect is to get coffee and to go to small group and to talk to each other and cry together and laugh together and hang out together, to be together. There are reasons why some people need to stay thoughtful because of different medical conditions or the people that they're in proximity with. I get that. It is time for us as a church community to lean in, to lean in. One of the effects of leaning in is the second piece, that we need to move from dehumanizing divisions to curiosity and charity. That when you're separate from people, it's easy to dehumanize people in ways that kind of demonize them. If they said a word that, you know, other people said that word, and I think you probably meant that thing, or you posted that thing, and so that probably means this. And so we just dehumanize people and divide against each other. And we need to move from that sort of dehumanizing division towards curiosity and charity. Man, I know you. I know your heart. We've lived life together. Like, tell me more. It seems like you see this situation differently than I do. And help me understand. Doesn't mean you're going to agree at the end of the day. That's why that second piece of charity, love, the ability to be in relationship with people you have a different perspective from. This is Christianity 101. I mean, this is like the way we're designed to be. And when we do it, it shows God's love to the world in a way that is so distinct, we know this, from the way the world is currently operating. We can because God is in us and God has given us the spirit of Jesus to actually guide us into this better way. There's a phrase in kind of psychological world uh, that was made popular by Patrick Lencioni. He wrote a book called The Advantage. It's called Fundamental Attribution Error. And it's this tendency for, for us as human beings to see something, some difference in somebody else, a mistake that we perceive they made, uh, a fault, an issue, something they said, and to jump to a quick judgment about their character. Whereas what we want from other people is for them not to judge our character, but to actually kind of say, well, I bet they had situ a situation that was hard, or I bet there's something going on, right? We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt with, well, that was a hard day, and it was a hard situation, or they misunderstood me. But we don't give other people the benefit of the doubt. We jump to a quick judgment. We attribute to their character some fundamental flaw. And then it makes us feel justified in jettisoning that friendship or writing them off, which is so arrogant and so common for all of us. And so what we're called to do is actually lean in with curiosity. Tell me more. Tell me more about that perspective and actually show charity and love towards one another. The third movement is from 
critical idealism towards grace and gratitude. Uh, critical idealism is something that, that really, uh, in terms of things I've had to apologize for as a pastor, for my first few years coming out of seminary, you know, when you come out of seminary, you're like, I know exactly the way everything should be. You know, it's like, uh, uh, that's not, you know, hopefully those of you that are in seminary are way more mature than I was, but like the perfect vision of the church. And so you have this vision of the church and, and you kind of want to chase after it. And everywhere it's falling short of the vision, you're like, ah, do better. That gospel community or that sermon or that service or that experience or that cultural thing. Like, ah, we're constantly failing. I'm constantly disappointed. Do you know who's not disappointed in the church? Jesus. He loves the church. He loves it. He sings over it with joy and with gratitude and with grace. There's this quote by a guy named John Veneer who uh, founded Large Communities, which was a community uh, designed to help uh, those with different um, special needs. And here's what he said. Almost everyone finds their early days in a community ideal. It all seems perfect. They feel they are surrounded by saints and heroes, or at the least, the most exceptional people who are everything they want to be themselves. And then comes the letdown. The greater their idealization of the community at the start, the greater the disenchantment. If people manage to get through this second period, they come to a third phase, that of realism and of true commitment. They no longer see other members of the community as saints or devils, but as people, each with a mixture of good and bad, darkness and light, each growing and each with their own hope. The community is neither heaven nor hell, but planted firmly on earth, and they are ready to walk in it and with it. They accept the community and the other members as they are. They are confident that together they can grow towards something more beautiful. Some of you have been disenchanted and disenfranchised with the church. There's a disillusionment. Man, I thought this was awesome. I thought it was fun. I thought Christians were supposed to be great all the time. It's like, read the Bible. I mean that. The people of God in the Old Testament were nutso, crazy, horrible. But then Jesus came and gave us a spirit, and it all got better. No. (laughs) You know, every letter in the New Testament is like, you're a mess, you're a mess, you're a mess, but Jesus loves you, and so let's learn and let's grow and let's heal, right? All the New Testament letters are apostles writing to churches that were a total mess, divided, frustrated, doing crazy stuff, veering off course. The people of God have always been broken mess, and our kind of celebration is not like, welcome to this idealistic community, but it's welcome to a community that is learning about the grace and love that Jesus has for broken people like me and you. And that's beautiful. That's where real healing and change happens, which brings us into this next observation for us, that we need to move from surface friendships to courageous vulnerability. Courageous vulnerability. That you have permission to be imperfect. You have permission to not have it together. You have permission to be frustrated, permission to have doubts, permission to be struggling with anxiety and depression, permission to be struggling with sin addictions, permission to be so overwhelmed with life and work that you just feel frazzled and so disconnected. You have permission to be human. And when we can be honest about our humanity, the dark stuff within us, the dark motives, it is transformative. The most transformative experiences I've had in my whole life are when people around me who know me and see the darkest stuff within me, my darkest motivations, my darkest habits, my frustrations, my anger, my doubts, and they love me. 
Because that's the stuff that I feel terrified at times for people to see. And when I keep that in the dark of my heart, it festers and grows, makes me feel shame and unknown, and I isolate. And when people see it and they say, hey, we see that and we love you, we say often that transformation happens when grace meets shame. When you can be honest, man, I'm really having a hard time. It's okay. We all have hard times. Let's walk through it. Let's do it together. Let's walk through those things with courageous vulnerability. Here's what M. Scott Peck said. He said, how strange that we should ordinarily feel compelled to hide our wounds when we are all wounded. Community requires the ability to expose our wounds and weaknesses to, uh, to our fellow creatures. It also requires the ability to be affected by the wounds of others. But even more important is the love that arises among us when we share both ways our woundedness, when we're honest, and we share that. And that means some courage where you find in a small group, man, we're at, we're at kind of surface stuff, and my marriage is hurting. We're hurting. Or I feel like really kind of being swept away by my friends at work, and I'm hanging out with them, and I love them, I'm trying to love and serve them, but I'm in that community, they have such a negative view of Christianity, I'm kind of getting like swept up in it. And I agree with some of the things they're saying, and I don't know how to do that, right? but to do that in community. Like, yes, me too, right? Like, me too. Let's do that together with courageous vulnerability. That's where change happens. And the fifth pastoral encouragement is to move from consumerism to sacrificial love and commitment. That we tend to approach Christian community as what's in it for me. Are people pursuing me? Are they checking all the boxes that I want my ideal version of community to be? Or is it kind of like, following in line with my value systems? Is it making me feel the ways I want to feel? And and the moment it doesn't, then we jettison that. And I don't just mean churches. I mean friendships. I mean marriages. I mean extended family. That we kind of approach these things as what's in it for me versus with sacrificial love and commitment. When we lean into hard relationships, it is always transformative. Because there's always something God wants to do in your heart. Always. This is what God is like. He leans into hard relationships, right? Right? He, he leans into a relationship with me and with you. And so what it would look like for us to lean in with commitment, with love. And I think if we do that, we put God's glory on display. And here's why. This is exactly who Jesus is. Jesus didn't stay isolated from us. He moved towards us with humility, actually saying, I'm going to take responsibility for their brokenness. I'm going to carry it all. I'm going to let the sin and the brokenness of humanity kind of embodied it and carried it to the cross on our behalf. Jesus is the one who doesn't sit there and criticize us that we're not who we we need to be and we're not good enough yet. We need to do more. We need to do more. He sings over us with gratitude and with joy. He's a God who has made himself vulnerable, taking human form, suffering, dying for us so that we could be in relationship with him. And he is one who is so committed to you, so committed to me, and so committed to our community, this family, that he's actually purchased us with his blood. And so when we embody those attitudes, that mindset, when that kind of begins to inundate our own life, then we as a church family can actually show love to one another in a way that would put the glory of Jesus on display. And that's what I'm praying God would do among us. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we need you. There are powers, there are forces of darkness that are waging war against what you want to do in this community. You want us to know your love, but also to express your love to one another. 
You want us to know your faithfulness and show your faithfulness to one another. You, you want us to know your patience with us and to show that patience towards one another. You want us to know forgiveness and grace and to express that to one another. We want to, you want us to know your gentleness. You're gentle and lowly at heart, humble in your disposition towards us, and you want us to show that to one another. And we need you. We need your spirit to convict where we need to be convicted, to heal broken things, to reconcile divided relationships, to give us courage to do the work in our own heart that is kind of right now impeding us from maybe taking steps that we need to take. And so we pray that your spirit will be poured out on this church family even now. Even now. That your love would be poured out even now. That you'd strengthen us now to comprehend your incredible love for us. And that we would live into that. That we'd be filled up with all of your fullness. Not just as individuals, but as a church family. And would you glorify your name through our life together as Park Church in this city, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.